If you have a Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, we're going to find our way to 1 Peter chapter 1. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, maybe put a marker in your Bible or a finger there, whatever you need to. We've got a couple of stops before we actually get to the first chapter of 1 Peter. Now, I told you last week when we started this new series that in order to really understand these two books, First and Second Peter, you have to get into some biblical history at different times. And we did that last week. We're going to do it again this week. And like I said last week, I will do my part, as Ezra did, to make some sense of that history as we get into the book. All I need you to do is just keep an open mind and and all, like I said, do my part. Now, before we get to biblical history, let me give you just a little bit of my own. Back in the early 90s, and I believe early 90s means in 1990, I became a fan of a TV show called Northern Exposure. Anybody else a fan? Oh, wow, I didn't expect that many. Part of what I liked about that show, and I still do, was the character development within it. There were some quirky individuals that they really developed well. So I became a fan all the way through the series. My children watched it as well as they saw it in reruns. And a few years ago, we had the opportunity to stop in Roslyn, Washington, which is where it was actually shot. The TV series centered around the little community, the fictitious community of Sicily, Alaska, but Sicily, Alaska was really Roslyn, Washington. So we were on our way to Vancouver Island, and we made a quick little detour so that we could go tour the sites of Northern Exposure. When we pulled into the town, we went to the visitor center where they gave us a map of the sites, and we toured as many of those as we possibly could. We went to Maurice Minifield's house. We went by the K-Bear radio station. We saw Dr. Fleischman's office. We went into the Brick, which is a bar and a restaurant that was the center of their community, and we were quickly ushered out because we took our children in there, and apparently that's wrong, so we were, we were told to leave. And we did. And of course, we went by the church that you see in so many episodes of that series where the community would gather for main events, major things, meetings and discussions. It was pretty fun. Our kids still talk about that today as they have shown their spouses northern exposure. I mean, how crazy is that? 30 years later, they're, they're saying, hey, you got to watch this quirky TV show. And so they've, they've shown their spouses the same thing, and they've talked about that stop in Roslyn. Well, part of what strikes me about that is there's a number of different places that we can do the exact same thing. We can pull into a community that is noted for something, like maybe even Los Angeles. You want to go see the home of the stars? You get a map, and then you drive around, look at the home of the stars. There's a number of places that we can do that type of thing. Even in Scripture, we see that happening. The Apostle Paul would go places and he would tour around looking at some of the notable sites, the notable things, and he would use those things or those sites as a means of speaking truth, speaking the gospel to those that lived there. Let me show you one of those interesting places where Paul seemed to come into town, he got the map, and he went looking at different things. It happened to be in Athens, Greece. When he got there, he toured around until he landed in the center of their community. I'll show you what I mean. Acts chapter 17. 
Acts chapter 17. Keep your finger in 1 Peter 1. We're coming back there. But Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16. Just listen to how Luke writes this. Now Paul, or now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now that one verse is the one that tells me that Paul was touring around looking at different places. He saw that the city was full of idols, and Athens was. It still is today. It is full of idols. Paul knew that when he headed that direction. And when he got there, in my mind, he got the map and he started looking at some of those places. Not just the idols, but the temples that stood for worshiping those idols. He went to a place, obviously, where Zeus would have been the one that was worshipped. And Down the road from there, he followed his map and I can just see it vividly in my mind when he came to the temple of Aphrodite and he saw the idols that were made for the worship of her. And then he moved on down the road, maybe around the corner, and there was the temple to Hermes. And then he, he looked at his map and he said, I, I want to go see the temple of Dionysus. So he went there and, and then he wanted to take a look at Poseidon's temple and the, the statue that had been erected for the worship of Poseidon. And maybe he finished with Artemis or one of the other Greek gods. He visited all of those spots. And then, because Paul was who he was, and he was as astute as he was, I can promise you, that he went to the Parthenon. That was a place where everybody came to just sit and talk about all the philosophies and the ideas that centered around these false gods. There were idols everywhere, and all of the ideas around those idols were everywhere. It was a standing joke in those days, and probably still is today, that in Athens, it was easier to find a god than a man. They were everywhere. And all the philosophies, all of the teaching, it was right there in the Parthenon. And people prided themselves on having open minds where they could sit down and talk about all of those ideas. But in their open-mindedness, there was very little truth. There was very little that they held on to as solid truth. They preferred ideas. If the people living in Athens in those days, and again, probably even today, if they had access all the way back then to the internet, they'd have been dangerous. With their love for ideas, they'd have been dangerous. And in Greece today, that type of danger runs rampant. So Paul saw an opportunity when he was standing in the Parthenon, and he took it. Listen to what happens. Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now you have to understand that part of what Paul did was tell them that their worship of idols was hollow and empty. Now, I want to push pause on our discussion this morning and, and just let that sink in a little bit. The worship of any idol is hollow and empty. It is hollow 
and empty. And there are a number of idols that permeate not just our communities, but our lives. And so we have to know within a community setting that they are hollow and empty, but we have to know in a personal application that the worship of idols is hollow and empty. And if you struggle to wrap your mind around that, well, let's take a little detour real quick to the Old Testament, and I'll show you what the the prophet Jeremiah would say about that. Jeremiah chapter 10. If you're ever needing a place in Scripture that speaks directly to the foolishness, the emptiness of idol worship, this is a good place to go. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 1. Jeremiah is oftentimes known as the weeping prophet because he feels the word of the Lord very personally. He starts out, Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. I always like when a prophet starts that way. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you. Verse 2, Thus says the Lord, Learn not the ways of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. Now listen to what he says about the making of an idol. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations, and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. Now, speaking of idols, and I want you to think real quick about idols, how you would describe them, and maybe even the ones that you battle against yourself. I want you to get one in mind right now. Everybody got one? Shake your head yes. Even if you don't have one, shake your head yes. Okay, you're with me? Now, listen to what Jeremiah says. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are the work of skilled men, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. I like how Jeremiah boils that down. Well, Paul was saying that same type of thing in the center of the Parthenon. But the Bible would tell us he was reasoning with them, so my guess is he dressed that message up just a little bit because he wanted to get their attention. He didn't want to run them off. He didn't want to offend them, so he dressed that message up just a little bit. And after he told them that, and however he presented it, that the worship of all these idols around you is stupid and foolish, let me tell you about the living God, he started to present Jesus verse 19. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. 
What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So Paul, after dressing up what Jeremiah would say about idols, well, he just kind of fell right back into what Jeremiah was saying. This is all foolishness. Let me tell you about the God that created everything that you are standing on. And let me tell you about the God that died for you. And he told him about Jesus. And he told him about the resurrection. And he had them. He had them. Because he was presenting a relationship to them. Something that prior to this moment was completely foreign. Completely foreign. But now it's in front of them. And there were some people that believed. And there were others that said, we want to hear more. We want to hear more. You keep this conversation going. We want to hear more. Well, it is in that same light that Peter wrote the book of 1 Peter. He was presenting Jesus to a bunch of people that had been scattered all over the land during the dispersion of Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8, as they carried the gospel with them in great persecution to places where people were still stuck in idol worship. And so Peter helped them understand how to present Jesus in that situation. And that's what happens in chapter 1. So let's go there. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. 
Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now there's three things I want to pull out of this message. I wish we had enough time to go piece by piece through all of these verses that we just read, but I'm telling you we would be here well into the winter if we took everything piece by piece that Peter just laid out. So we're just going to pull three things out. And in order to do that, for the first one, we got to back up just a little bit. I purposefully skipped over this last Sunday so that we could go back to it this week. So start with me in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ in the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now there are two words in that first section that Paul really explains in the next section that we just read, and they are heady words. This is the deep end of the pool of doctrine, if you will. Understanding this can be extremely difficult. Here's the two words that I want to pull out because they get explained more as you go on. They're up here. Elect and foreknowledge. If you were paying close attention, you saw both of those words in the first two verses. Elect and foreknowledge. Now, doctrinally, they are referred to as divine election or predestination. Both of those terms can leave people completely spinning out in their minds, trying to figure out what it means. Divine election or predestination. Now, if you take both of those terms and study them in Scripture, you're going to go to some other places that will help clear up a bit of the fog. Places like this. Take a look. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 teaches us that God does not want anyone to perish. It goes on to teach us that he wants everyone to come to repentance. In John chapter 3, verse 16, we find out that he, meaning God, made a way for everyone through his son, Jesus. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus himself would say that he is the only way to a relationship with the Father. In fact, Jesus would say, I'm the way, the truth, and life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. That's helping us start to understand divine election and predestination. Number five. He knew ahead of time those that would accept his gift of grace. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 lays that out very clearly. That helps us understand foreknowledge. So we have election and we have foreknowledge that Peter is talking about to this group of believers that find themselves captured by both. They are the elect the ones that God knew before time would become his children. 
So Paul addresses a letter to them. And then when we start studying the rest of Scripture to determine exactly what that means, we find places like this that just clear it right up for us, right? No, it doesn't. Because the concept of divine election and predestination, when it is just placed in front of us, leaves us scratching our head. Because at some point, at some point in the midst of exploring it, it would appear that God created some people not to be saved. That's a problem. That is a problem. In light of the whole of Scripture, that is a huge problem. So in order to understand these deep things, it may be that we have to put another doctrine in play. And when we bring this other doctrine into predestination and divine election, this fog that is still here, even in light of these five things, begins to clear up just a little bit more. It's the doctrine of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three in one. Each one has a measured work in divine election or predestination. Here's a good way of looking at it. We were chosen by the Father, purchased by the Son, and set apart by the Spirit. Now that still sounds just a little bit doctriny, and so it can still leave you in a fog. So let me make it very personal. I'm going to show you how this applies to Phil Allspaugh. Now, you can plug in your own, and I really want to encourage you to do that. I've shown this to you before when we've talked about divine election and foreknowledge. I want to show it to you again. This is my application of this idea. Here it is. As far as God the Father is concerned, I was saved when he chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world. As far as the Son is concerned, I was saved when he died on the cross and came out of the grave. But as far as the Spirit is concerned, I was saved in August of 1978 when I responded to the gospel and was baptized at Westlink Christian Church, Wichita, Kansas. That's the way the Trinity comes into play in divine election. Each one has a measured role. It's very specific and it is very directed. But even in the midst of all of that, we can still find ourselves saying, I don't understand it. The elect and the foreknowledge of God, I don't get it. And if you don't get it, you're in good company because it is hard to wrap your mind around. So in order for us to be able to move on this morning, I want to give you one other thing to think about in regard to these two great doctrines. Yeah, well, here you go, Warren Wearsby. I'll give you two things. Warren Wearsby first. It took all three persons of the Godhead to bring me to salvation. If we separate these ministries, we will either deny divine sovereignty or human responsibility, and that would lead to heresy. We don't want to do that. So here's a way to think about it. God loves you and he chooses you every day. That's the best way to think about it. And then... Once you understand that, you get past the first two verses of 1 Peter 1, you get into this beautiful, beautiful, wonderful description of Peter on what salvation looks like. It is an incredible description of it. Absolutely incredible. It ought to inspire anybody to want to believe 
Just like what happened for Paul when he was standing in the, the Areopagus and he was presenting salvation and people believed and others said, tell us more. When Peter puts this forward in 1 Peter chapter 1, it ought to make you want to say, tell me more. And if you don't have that personal application, that last part about where you responded to the Holy Spirit, man, I challenge you to dig into it more so that you can fill in that blank. When was it that you responded to the prompting of the Holy Spirit that you might really understand what Jesus did for you when he died on the cross and rose from the grave, which directs you right back to the relationship that God wanted with you from the beginning of time? You figure out what it takes. You ask for more. You ask for more so that you get it. And once you get it, oh man, don't ever let it go. Don't ever let it go. Because you're in a relationship with the living God. You're in the relationship or a relationship with the creator of all that is around you. And the one that has loved you before time began and will love you forever. That's divine election and predestination. But in the midst of everything else that Peter teaches, he takes us to another term that's kind of hard to understand. Here it is, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Born again. People hear that term all the time, and they wonder what in the world it means. From the time it first showed up in Scripture in John chapter 3, people have wondered what it meant. Jesus is the one who said it first in John chapter 3, and he was speaking to a very learned man named Nicodemus. So when he said it to Nicodemus, Nicodemus said, whoa, 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 whoa. That's loose paraphrase. He said, hold on. What in the world does born again mean? How can someone be born again when they are old? He asked a natural question. He really did. It's a natural question. And Jesus answered it. I encourage you to go to John chapter 3 and read the whole explanation. Not right now, a little bit later. Go to John chapter 3, read the entire explanation of what it means to be born again. But for the sake of time, let me boil it down like this. When you are born of your parents, your mother and your father, you become a reflection of their DNA. You receive their DNA and you become a reflection of that. When you are born again, you reflect the DNA of God. That's the easiest way to think about it. Your life is forever changed. You receive something different. In the second letter that Peter wrote, he would talk about that very thing. This is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. If you're a bold note taker, you might want to write in the margin of your Bible, God's DNA, right next to that. If you want to take it a little further, God's DNA becomes my DNA. You can put that right there in the margin of your Bible to understand born 
again. You become a reflection of who God is. Now, in the first chapter of 1 Peter, Peter would go on to say that when that happens, you are born again into a living hope. Into a living hope. Now, here's the beauty of that. The living hope helps us understand the eternal nature of our relationship with God through His Son, Jesus. But in order to get there, maybe we have to think of it like this. A baby cannot be arrested because they have no past. They've done nothing wrong that would lead them to a place where they could be arrested. When we are born again, it's just like that. There is nothing of our past because our past no longer matters. There's nothing of our past that can be held against us. The living hope says we get to move into this wonderful relationship with God where everything is fresh and new and we get to grow up with Him. And we have no fear. We have no fear. And Peter goes on to describe that for us as we go through that passage that we've already read. He helps us understand what that living hope looks like. It's an inheritance that is kept in heaven for us where it will never perish, spoil, or fade. It was sealed by the Holy Spirit and it is protected by the Holy Spirit. And so we are safe in this relationship with God. And that happens. That happens through Jesus Christ. What an amazing gift. What an absolutely amazing gift. I like the way John MacArthur talks about it. Take a look at this. The unbelieving world knows only dying hope, but believers have a living, undying hope in Jesus. That's a great way to think about it. That's what I have in Christ. And if I want to reason with people like Paul did, I just want them to understand this. Outside of Jesus, the only hope I have is dying. It is perishing. But in Christ, I have a living, undying hope, and it will stay with me forever. Now let's take, let's take these hard things of Scripture, election and foreknowledge, divine election, predestination, put it together with the idea of being born again. These are difficult things to understand. I want you to understand that you are in great company if you struggle to wrap your mind around those things. You want to know how good a company you're in? Well, take a look again in 1 Peter Right down at the end of verse 12. In fact, we'll just read the whole of verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The things that we're talking about right now, even the angels don't understand it. The angels struggle to wrap their minds around these things. Divine election, foreknowledge, what it means to be born again, redemption and forgiveness. You want to know why the angelic realm wrestles with that so much? It's really pretty simple. Because the holy angels don't need to be redeemed, and the fallen angels can't be. So they struggle with it. They struggle with it. It's a difficult thing for them to understand. Even though the angels have been a part of God's plan of salvation from the very beginning. 
Let me show you eight ways that angels are involved in salvation, God's plan for it. Here they are. They announced Christ's birth, Luke chapter 1. Angels ministered to Jesus during the times of testing, Matthew chapter 4. They stood by the grave when he rose from the dead, Matthew 28. Angels were there when he ascended into heaven, Acts chapter 1. Today they serve God by ministering to his church, Hebrews chapter 1. They celebrate every new life in Christ, Luke chapter 15. They watched over the apostles, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And they are continual witnesses to grace, Ephesians chapter 3. But the Bible tells us, Peter tells us, they still struggle. They still struggle. And isn't that the way of a lot of people too? The gospel gets presented to us. We get to experience some really cool things because of God. But we still struggle to understand his love. We still struggle to understand the relationship that he wants with us. If that is a personal struggle for you, I want you to listen to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, starting in verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved from his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That happened through Jesus. You've been born again through Jesus. God chose you, and he chooses you every day, and you are special to him. You are so special, you are so special that he sent his son to die for you, that you could have relationship with him, and a living hope follows that. And you receive his DNA that you might become a reflection of him everywhere you go. That's the beautiful picture of it wonderful picture of it. Well, this morning, I know that we have folks with us that still wrestle with that. Others that have experienced it, but it is still difficult. So I want to leave you with a challenge this morning. The challenge has a couple of different components. I want to encourage you to ask God to reveal to you what you need to see and what you need to hear from Him personally. And then I want you to set your mind on what Jesus did for you so that you'll have the right frame of mind. You're asking God, God the Father, to show you exactly what you need. And you are focusing your mind on what Jesus did for you so everything else kind of disappears. The clutter of life just disappears. And then here's where the challenge gets real. I want to encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to show you in Scripture what you need to hear. Then open your Bible and get to reading. So you've asked God to tell you what you need to hear. You've cleaned up all the clutter by focusing on Jesus. And now you're opening your Bible so that the Holy Spirit can direct you right where you need to go. I thought about this Thursday evening and Friday as I was finishing up the message. came to me in a conversation that Tina and I were having over dinner with some wonderful folks. It just seemed to resonate a bit. 
And then I, I started to explore a little bit more and, and picked up a book from Alistair Bag, and that's where this challenge came from. And in that, there's a Christmas letter that he references that he had received from a, a lady. Now, he doesn't ever give her name, but she gives her husband's name. In this Christmas letter, she talks about how God, through his word, opened their eyes that they might understand what they needed to hear. So that's where this challenge comes from. I'm going to read for you just an excerpt of that Christmas letter. Not very much at all. Listen close. We found the answer. They were looking for answers in life. We found the answer. I, in October of 1995, and Randy on December 26, 1995. The verse that sent the message home for Randy was Proverbs 19, verse 3. A man's own folly runs his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. For me, it was Psalm 40, verse 2. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. This reconciliation with God would not be possible without the love of God. He made the first move because he loved us first. We celebrate Christmas because we know that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So you ask God to tell you what you need to hear. Declutter your life and your mind by focusing on Jesus. Then you open your Bible and you get to listening to what God has to share with you. The Holy Spirit will guide you. And as he does, you may be able to finish the last sentence of what we talked about earlier, about how the Trinity brings you to a place to understand predestination and divine election that you might live with God forever and ever and ever. It's my challenge. I hope you'll take it seriously until you can finish the whole thought. And this is when the Holy Spirit led me to Christ. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father in heaven, you loved us before time began. <laughs> That's mind-blowing. You loved us enough to send your son to die for us. That's heart-rending. And then, Lord, you gave us your spirit to guide us into relationship with you. That is soul-inspiring. And, Father, when we come into you, we come into a, a relationship that is defined as living hope. Thank you, Lord. Oh, it's curious and it's hard to understand, but wow. Wow. I'm praying this morning for those that have yet to experience that wow factor. I'm praying, Lord, that they will today. I'm praying for those that have experienced it. I'm praying that you will, you will fan that flame so that they, like Peter and like Paul, will want to reason with people that have not experienced it, that they will. Lord, would you let your church do what your church does so well and spread the gospel. And I pray that we'll do it in ways that people hear and understand and long for. In Jesus' name, amen.